Welcome to One of Those Times in a Life, sharing songs and stories around the virtual campfire. At this campfire, you are the one. That's the first verse of a song called You Are the One. Returning from Japan in 1990, I was sure that Pat was the one. We'd met in college 25 years earlier. She'd married a good friend of mine, had two girls I knew and loved from the time they were born. How and why she and I fell in love remains somewhat mysterious and, and yet quite simple. Like Odysseus, we are all trying to find our way home. And with Pat, I was sure that I had found someone to share the journey. And so it was. With boundless hope and complete faith in the power of love, I returned to Seattle that June, eager and anxious to get started. At 43, having lived alone for the previous 13 years and having no children of my own, but now ready to share a house with two teenagers, the fact that it somehow didn't dawn on me that there would be big and important adjustments on everyone's part makes me realize in retrospect that at least in my case, besides being blind, love can sometimes be pretty dumb. Ready. But not prepared, I magically thought that love would and could be the answer to any and all questions. It didn't take long to learn when it comes to blending a family that love is not an answer. But together, with laughter, luck, a lot of work and time, love can be and is the tie that binds. I see love is the question, love is the answer. As well as a new direction in my personal life, the early 90s brought changes in the Brothers Four. For nearly 35 years, Bob Flick, Dick Foley, and John Payne were the three recognizable faces and voices in that group. And while each had added a successful second career, Bob in audio production, John in video, and Dick on TV, they had always found a way to balance the demands of those careers with their love of singing and performing as the Brothers Four. And during those decades, only three of us had stood in that fourth spot. Mike Kirkland had set the standard until I replaced him in the late 60s. Bob Hayworth replaced me when I went in search of a solo career, and then I retook the spot when Hayworth left to join the Kingston Trio. I believed there would be no further changes until some night in the distant future when Bob, Dick, and John would tell me that together they decided to call it a day. And then suddenly Japan couldn't get enough of the group, and U.S. audiences were rediscovering us as well. 
In December of 1990, we returned to Japan for a third time in 18 months, this time for two weeks of hotel holiday shows. Pat was able to come for a week of that tour. Before a show in Sapporo, she was outside walking, the snow falling gently. She saw a huge billboard with a picture of all of our faces on it. And after the show, she wanted us to see it and have our pictures taken underneath it. The problem was that an hour after the show, our faces, the faces of our group, had been replaced by the faces of those who were going to be part of the next show. Another sign, both literally and figuratively, of how fickle and funny the music business can be. As 1991 began, there was talk of another major tour to Japan in May, more holiday shows the following December. If not a mighty wind, it was feeling like a significant second wind. You can wait a long time for the phone to ring, and if it finally does, you need to answer it, and you want your answer to be yes. At the same time, Dick Foley was hosting a successful regional television show, as well as developing a second show for syndication with national aspirations. It was an abundance of career riches that now involved choices. And reluctantly, Dick chose to see how far television would take him, while the Brothers Four set out to replace the irreplaceable. As a respected music producer, Bob had worked with the best musicians in the Northwest. Among the most versatile and talented was a guy named Terry Lauber, who became the choice to replace Dick. And while Terry's roots were in rock and roll, his ability and experience helped him fit in quickly and brought a new level of musicianship to the group. We also became a little more of a business and a little less of a family. Terry's first tour with the group in December of 1991 included a week of concerts in Taiwan, Christmas shows in Japan, as well as providing music and being a significant part of the first annual Japanese America Grassroots Summit that took place in Kyoto, Japan. The idea of that gathering was to remember the 150 years of friendship between Japan and the U.S. that began in 1841 when a Japanese fishing vessel was wrecked and the crew, among them a 14-year-old boy named John Manjiro, was rescued by a U.S. whaling ship. Of those rescued, Manjiro was the only one to choose to go to America and by doing so became the first person from Japan to set foot on American soil. Eventually, he returned to his homeland and was instrumental in forging a lasting relationship with the U.S. when Admiral Perry sailed into Tokyo Bay in 1853 and demanded Japan open itself to the outside world. A song Bob Flick wrote called In the Name of Brotherhood became a theme song for the gathering that not coincidentally corresponded to the 50th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Our invitation to be part of that summit was yet one more example of the special relationship the group has with the country and the people of Japan. After all the testing and all of the blessings, all of the lessons, untying those knots, learn life's about giving and truly forgiving. 
and loving and living with all we've got. And that love is the question. Something I've been trying to do my whole adult life is reconcile the differences between what might be called the myth of my family growing up and what I later learned to be the truth. The truth meant beginning to discover in my 20s a hundred-year family history of mental illness that included an uncle dying in a mental institution and my dad confined to one the months before and after I was born. The truth naturally involved the consequences of the disease, but also contained the impacts of denial of it, not having a way to talk about it, as well as the effects of living with unspoken, unspecified fears and shame that was part of it. It took most of a lifetime to get to one of those times in a life where I believe I know enough and have enough faith to finally try to tell that story. One of the things that kept me going, even when I didn't have the faith, besides a need to understand who I was and why I did some of the things I did, was a need to understand who my parents were and why they did what they did. A need simplified and complicated by the fact that I always loved them, for the most part liked them, and as an adult got along with them and enjoyed being with them. And that continued to be true after Pat and I got together. My folks had known her before, and after we became a couple, they welcomed her and her daughters into the family. Early in our relationship, she and I invited my folks to come to the west side for a weekend. They drove from Spokane. We went to the Skagit Valley. We saw swans and snow geese. We had such a good time, we started getting together on a regular basis. The next time was near Leavenworth. The highlight of that trip was the owner of a bed and breakfast cooked a private dinner for the four of us. (laughs) And when Pat and I visited Spokane, there were frequent bridge tournaments and double tennis matches with Pat and my dad on one side and my mom and me on the other. One of our best times together was in 1992, when the Brothers Four participated in the second annual Japanese America Grassroots Summit. This time it was in the U.S., beginning in Boston, where John Manjiro spent time when he was in America. We sang at an event at the Kennedy Presidential Library, and John Kennedy Jr. was the guest speaker. The summit continued a week later at Yellowstone Park and Cody, Wyoming. I'd flown back to Seattle, and Pat and I drove to Yellowstone with my folks. My dad worked at the park during the summers when he was in college. We had gone as a family when I was growing up. On this trip, the four of us created our own memories while doing a lot of laughing and remembering and discovering, including being horrified at the extent of the devastation the fires of 1988 had done to the park. Everyone involved in the summit went out of their way to make my parents feel welcome. One night, my mom was talking to one of the Japanese sponsors. He told her how he and three of his friends had formed a Brothers Four tribute group years earlier. They continued singing together to this day, and each of the four guys assumed the role of someone in the Brothers Four. Well, which one are you? my mom asked. Why, Mrs. Pearson, he replied, his arm around my mother now. I'm your son. To this day... His group continues to sing. We often meet with him when we're in Japan. He never fails to ask how my mother's doing. 
In my life, there have been a lot of twists and turns regarding songwriting and storytelling. I think the most fun I've ever had working and playing with words was as a freelance verse writer for American Greetings in the 1990s. I put a portfolio together for a friend of mine who was working for the company who got it to the right people, and in less than a month, they got back to me saying how seldom they respond to unsolicited material, how much they liked what I did, and that they look forward to working with me and would be excited to meet me whenever I was in Cleveland, and they also told me they were ready to send me a check for the half a dozen verses that they were going to use. Now, having chosen the often solitary professions of songwriting and storytelling where rejection proves the rule, being paid the exception, and feeling on the outside looking in often the norm, I almost didn't know what to do with such an open-armed, open-walleted response but I managed. Over the next couple of years, a relationship developed. I visited whenever I was in the area. I regularly sent them verses or ideas I had. They would ask me for my input on projects that they were developing. They couldn't have been more supportive. And because I tend to be a word-first songwriter, a lot about rhyming verses felt familiar and playing with free verse was a lot of fun. Some of my favorite memories from that time was working on verses or projects when the Brothers Four were touring and I would look out the window of the bus or the car and simply think good thoughts about people I cared about and daydream ways to say good things to them in a greeting card form. After six or seven years, the people who championed me in the company moved on to other positions or left. The phone stopped ringing Checks stopped coming, fun while it lasted. And during the early 90s, I also created a manuscript for a second novel. Written in the first person, it's called Back Before the Rain. It's about a folk singer in his late 30s down and his luck suddenly offered a chance to make some big money going on the road performing as part of a group that he'd grown up idolizing. They do say right about what you know about a friend of mine whom I respect and I'm happy to say is still my friend, agreed to read the manuscript and offer suggestions. The story went through more rewrites and an agent search before ending up in a drawer next to that first manuscript, My Brother's Keeper. By the early 90s, most of the people I'd worked with in Nashville and who had shown the most faith in me through the years had also moved on or up or away. With the meteoric rise of Garth Brooks and others like Clint Black, Alan Jackson, and Brooks and Dunn, country music was completing its transition from regional power to international brand. An emphasis on young country made me feel a little old and out of step. And while I could still get through some of the doors, the buildings behind those doors appeared to get bigger and bigger, 
none more so than the BMI and ASCAP buildings on the respective corners of Music Square East and West. Throughout the 90s, I tried to visit Nashville at least twice a year, usually coming in on a Sunday night and heading back at the end of day on Friday. Sherry Bond's book, The Songwriters and Musicians' Guide to Nashville, published in 91, became a helpful roadmap. There's a saying that two weeks in New York City is too long and two years is not long enough. I suppose the same could be said for a week or a year as a songwriter in Nashville, although I never did find out the difference a year or more might have made. Every time I visited Nashville, I thought this could be it. In a way, I thought of my songs as lottery tickets, believing this time one of them was going to be the jackpot winner. The hardest part of those weeks was always mental. Staying positive, keeping the faith, making that one more cold call, accepting the rejection, and sometimes I got anxious that people might realize I was anxious. Looking back, the truth is that, with a few exceptions, the songs I wrote in hopes of selling were not songs I wrote to sing. They lacked my heartbeat. It, it was like I was manufacturing them instead of creating them. Find a clever title, mold it into a hook, choose a song form, study what's selling, try to write something similar, but not too similar, it was not a, a satisfying or sustainable way to write songs. But not all songs I wrote were for sale. I also wrote songs to sing or simply for moments and memories and people I cared for, never more successfully than for Pat's youngest daughter, Lindsay's 15th birthday. Love is the question. Love is the answer. In the spring of 1991, after being told there would be no school play, Pat took it upon herself to produce Little Abner so that her youngest daughter, Lindsay, could continue to pursue her dreams, develop her talents, and maybe most important, have a creative outlet for what was not an easy time in her life. On all levels, the play was a smashing success, none more so than the circle of friends that became part of Lindsay's life including an incredibly talented inner circle of two boys, Lindsay and another girl. The world was simply alive and buzzing when the four of them were together. For Lindsay's birthday in March of 92, I wrote nine songs, including one for each of her three friends, as well as ones for her mother and sister to sing. The original plan was to secretly record them at Terry Lauber's professional home studio and then present the finished product to Lindsay at a surprise birthday party. The plan changed in a splendid moment of inspiration when we decided instead to kidnap Lindsay and have her be there for the recording. When we took her blindfold off in that room full of microphones and headphones and now filling with that unmistakable buzz, there was not a dry eye in the place and we hadn't even started to record yet. We spent the next hour or two in a place of bliss. The studio would fill with that buzz and Terry would say rolling 
and the buzzing would stop suddenly. Whose ever turn it was would sing right to Lindsay as the rest of us watched with open mouths and open hearts, and when the song was finished, it was like we all exhaled together and the room filled with yet more emotion. When the last song was recorded, exhausted and exhilarated, we all went back to the house with a copy of what we'd done and listened over and over, taking time only for birthday dinner and for Lindsay to blow the candles out and share her cake. My memory of standing in the other room, watching those four kids listening to those songs, appears to me now like the final scene of a movie, where just before the credits roll, a voice tells us that the next year one of the two boys will go to a rival high school, and that tight circle will begin to loosen. The other boy will go on to star in all the high school musicals and then tragically die in an auto accident before his 20th birthday. The other girl who loved the boy who died will go on to love again and sing songs and put on plays for her own five children. And Lindsay would remain active in theater, appearing in numerous high school and college productions before moving to New York, where she ended up getting her dream job, working at the New Victory Theater, where part of what she does is help school kids pursue their dreams, develop their talents, and find a creative outlet for what is not always an easy time in their lives. Love is the question, love is the answer, love is the reason, and you are the one, you are the one, you are the one, you are the one. Thanks for sharing one of those times in a life at the next campfire with me, wherever I go. Hope to see you then. And remember, when you buy a CD or download a soundtrack of the journey, you are helping make this journey possible.